Good morning. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13. Like last week, I'm actually going to be in many different passages today, and uh, uh, there'll be a few opportunities for you to turn, turn in your Bible with me as we uh, look at today's message about repentance. So let, let me go ahead and pray. Father, I pray that even as we come to your word this morning, that our heart attitude would be that which we just sang. Give me Jesus. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. And Father, I pray that through this word that you would draw us near to Jesus even this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Repentance is, is not an optional add-on to the Christian life, but is essential to it. Whenever people teach the idea that you can be saved without repentance, or whenever people give the impression that you can be in right relationship with God without repentance, they are misleading people and promoting falsehood. In the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, repentance is essential to being reconciled to God. God promises mercy to those who repent. God does not promise mercy to those who merely agree that it would be beneficial to receive mercy and who express good intentions for making positive changes in their life, but who never get around to actually repenting. It's, it's not uncommon for people to be caught in an endless circle of non-repentance. Uh, they agree in principle that they are sinful. They agree in principle that they need mercy. They agree in principle that they ought to make some changes in their life, but they never actually turn away from their sin and turn to the Lord. And it is easy for people to mistakenly think that they are spiritually okay because they've got some right spiritual principles bouncing around in their head. Now, it is important to have right spiritual principles, the principles of God's Word, in your head, but it has to be translated into turning to the Lord with all your heart. Uh, perhaps you don't want to be one of those people standing on a street corner holding up a sign that says, Judgment is coming. Repent or perish. And as far as my priorities go for this particular sermon, I don't care whether or not you hold up such a sign on a street corner in Paris or Oxford. However, I care deeply that you believe the truth of it with all your heart. The 13th chapter of Luke begins by saying, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? 
No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those who were murdered by Pilate and those who were not had this in common. They were great sinners in grave danger of perishing. Those who were killed by the accidental disaster of a falling tower and those who weren't killed had this in common. They were great sinners in grave danger of perishing. Jesus refuses to get sentimental about the tragedies of those who are already dead. Instead, he pivots from those tragedies to speak an urgent message to those who are still alive. If you don't repent of your sinful offenses, then you're going to meet a bitter end. Their bitter end at the hands of Pilate or under a collapsing tower is a parable of the bitter end that you will face if you don't get your sin problem straightened out. Repent or perish. Immediately after these sobering words spoken by Jesus, Luke recounts a parable that Jesus told. Verse 6, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Anytime an unrepentant sinner is cut down, no injustice is done. But God is patient. You weren't murdered by Pilate. The collapsing tower didn't fall on you. You still have breath and life and opportunity. God is patient and he delays his judgment so that you might turn from your sin and become like a healthy tree that bears good fruit. The urgent appeal to repent or perish is made in reference to the other part of that imaginary sign being held up on the street corner, judgment is coming. That's just how Paul presses the urgent need for repentance upon the men in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul proclaimed, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Each one of us has an appointment with the holy judge. Divine judgment is coming, and it will be done according to God's perfect standard of righteousness. The God-ordained way of preparing for that day is repentance. Those who repent and turn to the Lord will have courage to meet that great day of judgment with confidence in the Lord who has rescued them. But the unrepentant will meet that day with terror as they stand before the Lord whose words they have spurned. The day of the Lord is coming. Repent or perish. Before we go any further, I think it's important to get it squared away in our minds that both the Old Testament and New Testament convey the same message that God promises mercy to those who repent. I'm afraid that some people have taken repentance out of the mercy equation. 
Some people might do this because they put a wedge between the Old Testament and New Testament, and they mistakenly assume that the very demanding Old Testament demands repentance, and the very liberating New Testament liberates us from the need for repentance. To be liberated from the need for repentance would be to be consigned to remain stuck in one's sin. And that is certainly not grace. Other people might make a similar mistake because they have a superficial understanding of grace. And they mistakenly assume that grace doesn't require anything of us. And they mistakenly assume that if repentance is required of us, then grace isn't free. These types of mistakes are what happen when we try to reason according to what makes sense to us instead of reasoning according to the Scriptures. So I just want to show you from both Testaments that God promises mercy to those who repent. There are many such examples. I'll just give you one from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord had a word for his rebellious people who were up to their heads in sin. And because their everyday life was a moral sham, God looked very unkindly upon their worship. Their worship was a sham because their everyday walk with God was not a reality. And so here is the instruction that God gives to these moral rebels in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." The flow of thought is easy to recognize. God promises mercy, forgiveness, and life to those who make a clean break from their evil and turn to what is good and just as defined by God's Word. The same flow of thought is carried over into the New Testament. In one of the opening scenes of the New Testament, John the baptizer proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 1.4. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And through this faithful prophet, God promised merciful forgiveness to those who repented of their sin. When Jesus began to preach, he proclaimed the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4.17. The Pharisees were not happy that Jesus took his message to the riffraff. And so they disapprovingly asked, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Luke 5.30. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question by saying, because they need to understand that they are okay just the way they are. The Pharisees knew that the tax collectors and sinners were not okay just the way that they were. Of course, the Pharisees failed to realize that they weren't okay either. But Jesus' answer to the Pharisees shows that the tax collectors and sinners were not okay. 
And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus came to administer gracious care to people who are not okay, that is, to unrighteous and sick-hearted sinners. And Jesus answered these Pharisees in Luke 5, 31 and 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is the great physician of his soul and part of his administration of grace to spiritually diseased sinners is to call them to repentance. In another passage, Jesus makes it clear that in order to truly turn to him, one must turn away from a self-centered and self-promoting way of life. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus promises his gracious salvation to those who abandon every other defining allegiance and order their lives around him and his gospel. Jesus commissioned his apostles with this mission at the end of the gospel of Luke. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. When the apostles proclaimed the gospel in the book of Acts, they urged repentance. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 verse 38. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, Acts 3, 19. The fact that some passages in Acts refer only to repentance and not faith, and that other passages refer to only faith and not repentance, and some passages refer to both, should not be taken to mean that the message changes. There's not a cookie-cutter way of articulating the gospel. The gospel can be articulated in different ways, but the underlying message does not change. The apostles proclaimed a message of repentance and faith. True repentance is a believing repentance, and true faith is a repentant faith. When Paul described his conversion to King Agrippa and his call to ministry, the Apostle Paul said that Jesus sent him to Jews and Gentiles in order to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The order is clear. First, you have to get spiritual sight. And then, with your eyes now open, you turn away from satanic darkness and you turn to the light of God's glory and grace. And third, having turned to God, he meets you with gracious forgiveness and sanctifying power. Paul's description of, this, of his commission is entirely consistent with the commission that the Lord had given to the other apostles. God promises his mercy to those who turn from darkness to light, to those who turn from Satan to the power of God. The, ent the entire Bible proclaims that, it, that, that repentance is absolutely necessary if one would be truly reconciled to God. So far, so good, but what is repentance 
really. So we need to, we need to unpack what repentance is. I'll give you a, a definition, and then we'll walk through it. Repentance means turning away from idolatry and wickedness and turning to the Lord with all your heart in response to his gracious word. That's what repentance is. Repentance always involves this twofold aspect of turning. There is a turning away from evil, and there is a turning to the Lord. If you have ever heard repentance described in terms of a 180 degree turnaround or in terms of an about face, you know, where you were, you were heading and facing one direction and then you turned around and began to face and head in another direction. That description is, is accurate. Um, this is how Paul described the conversion of the Christians in Thessalonica. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul said, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They turned to God from idols. Anyone who is not serving the living and true God is serving something or someone else. And whatever that something or someone else is, is an idol, a God substitute, a false religious system. The only way into right relationship with God is to turn from these idols and to turn to the true and living God that you might worship and serve Him alone. As the prophet Ezekiel declared to the house of Israel, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations, Ezekiel 14, 6. The message of the prophets to the disobedient people of Judah is summarized in Jeremiah 25, verses 5 and 6. Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm." The Lord's call upon our lives is to love Him above all else and that we might demonstrate our love for Him by obeying His words with a willing and glad heart. Anything that undermines your loving and obedient devotion to the Lord is a massive problem. It might be a self-serving agenda. It might be a proud heart. It might be a refusal to acknowledge God's authority and you insist on calling the shots yourself. It might be the sins of illicit pleasure because you want to feel something on the cheap. It might be fear of other people and enslavement to what other people think about you. It might be preoccupation with money or power or control. It might be an unwillingness to submit your mind to the authoritative teaching of Scripture. It might be your self-serving heart that doesn't want to humbly serve your spouse, your children, your neighbors. You're happy to have all of them serve you because it's all about you. It might be that you are impressed with your own moral assets 
You come from good stock. You have a good heritage. You're a decent enough, decent enough person with a measure of churchiness mixed in. Good for you. The Pharisees knew that the tax collectors and sinners lacked moral assets. But Jesus knew that the moral assets possessed by the Pharisees was worthless because they were trusting in themselves. The tax collectors and sinners needed to repent of their God-belittling immorality and injustice. The Pharisees needed to repent of their God-belittling, self-trusting religiosity and self-promoting righteousness. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in any moral or spiritual ladder of your own making that will somehow reach to the heavens. Stop trusting in the deceitful promises of sin. Stop trusting in, re, in, in unreliable words. Stop hanging on the words of men, especially your own. Stop doing life your way. It's a dead end. Turn around. Start paying attention to the words of God and do whatever He tells you. And what does He tell you? Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. For I am God and there is no other. Or, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Repentance is not only turning away from idolatry and wickedness, but also turning to the Lord. And this means that repentance is fundamentally relational. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 1.3. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live, Amos chapter 5, verses 4 and 6. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel, Joel 2.13. Did you hear those words? Turn to me. Come to me. Return to me. Seek me. The heart of the biblical repentance that we proclaim is not to get busy not to get religious, not to pull yourself into a moral reformation, not to become an advocate for the poor, not to become the resident expert of all things theological. Make no mistake about it, the gospel does not fail to produce a thousand good fruits in our lives. But the center of the biblical repentance that we proclaim is return to the Lord. Behold your God. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Paul did not go to the city of Corinth bearing a message about an elaborate religious system or a sophisticated philosophical framework. The Apostle Paul went to the city of Corinth as a jar of clay bearing a message about a person, which is why he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I desired to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There was a 19th century theologian 
and church leader named J.B. Lightfoot. Years ago, I wrote one of his quotes in the flyleaf of my Bible. He said, Though the gospel is capable of doctrinal exposition, though it is eminently fertile in moral results, yet its substance is neither a dogmatic system nor an ethical code, but a person and a life. When a sinner's eyes are open to see what is really there in the gospel message, what he sees is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See the Lord crucified and risen. Turn to the Lord, trusting His work instead of your own. Forsake all others and call upon His name. As we sang... All I once held dear, built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my awe. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. Turning to the Lord must not be done mechanically or half-heartedly. Thus, I included in my definition that repentance means turning to the Lord with all your heart. True repentance is a heartfelt turning to the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Joel 2, 12 and 13. The book of Deuteronomy envisions repentance this way. But from there, it's from a really bad place, if you look in the context. But from there, you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. It's the mindset that says, give me Jesus. I've got to have Jesus. I've got to have him. When one turns to the Lord with all of one's heart, then it represents the start of lifelong obedience. Turning to the Lord entails a willingness to obey the instructions of the one to whom you are turning. The Lord declared through his prophets, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, 2 Kings 17, 13. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds, Jeremiah 18, 11. John the Baptist proclaimed, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the Apostle Paul followed suit. He said that he declared that people should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, Acts 26, verse 20. It should be obvious from all that has been said so far that our repentance must be in response to the Lord's gracious words. The Thessalonian idolaters who became Thessalonian Christians didn't make the switch because their thoughts mysteriously switched gears some morning. No. Paul took the gospel to them. We're told about this in Acts 17. Paul went into the synagogue there in Thessalonica and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. They turned to the Lord in response to his word. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians, he expressed gratitude to God for them, and he expressed his confidence that they were truly part of God's elect people. And how did he know that? Well, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It was the proclamation of the Word of God and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that elicited and brought about the repentance of the Thessalonians. So in the Thessalonian believers, we have an example of idolaters who turn to the Lord in response to the Lord's gracious Word. True repentance is not man's calculated attempt to turn over a new leaf. True repentance is not man charting a new course for himself. True repentance isn't making New Year's or mid-year's resolutions to improve yourself. Repentance means turning away from your idolatry and wickedness and turning to the Lord with all your heart in response to his gracious word. Now, I have four applications. Uh, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Let me just say this before I, I share any of my applications. It is, it, is, it is good. It is good to get the doctrine of repentance right. But... Getting the doctrine of repentance right is no substitute for living it. Now, my first application is a direct appeal to unbelievers. So if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you're, you're, you're on the outside of the kingdom of God, or if you're listening online and you're outside of the reality of Christ, then this is a sermon within a sermon. This is for you. This is for you. Isaiah chapter 55. The Lord's gracious word invites dissatisfied sinners to quit their sins and discover life in him. Verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. All who are thirsty, all who are hungry, all who are dissatisfied, all who are bankrupt, listen up. You've been listening to a smorgasbord of gurus and ideas. And look at where it's gotten you. You're broken and broke, and you can't pay to fix it. The good news is that God has an offer for you. 
He has an abundant supply of refreshing waters, exhilarating wine, nourishing milk, living bread. And these are offered free of charge. Do you want to learn more? Then listen diligently to what the Lord is about to say, because it is through his words that he opens up to you a world of joy. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. True life depends on hearing the promise of the Lord, so come to him with open ears. The Lord will set his covenant love upon you. The faithful, steadfast, unalterable, utterly reliable, loving kindness that the Lord has for David and for the son of David will be for you also if you come to him. The Lord made David's life impactful and the son of David's life ultimately so. And all of the Lord's redeemed people will likewise have an outsized impact because the hand of the Lord is in it. And you will be part of it if you come to him. Look at verses 4 and 5. Behold, I made David a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you, because the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. You can let your own sin and folly run their course to poverty and ruin, or you can trust the Lord to make something beautiful of your life, and he will. But you must leave the sin and folly behind. Verses 6 to 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I learned something very important about these verses many years ago when I was listening to a sermon series on Isaiah chapter 55 by Pastor John Piper. Interestingly, the context for my listening to those sermons was a small step of Repentance, which I think I've told some of you about. A co-worker had given me a handheld Yahtzee game. No joke. And in short order, I found myself addicted to the game. And eventually, I decided that enough was enough, put electrical tape around it and put it in a box where it remains to this day. But when you turn away from something unhelpful you must turn to something that is helpful. And what I turned to were those sermon, five sermons on Isaiah 55 by John Piper. And here, here's something, this line of thought that I'm about to share with you is something that I learned from those sermons. Many people take verses 8 and 9 out of context and assume that God's thoughts and ways are massively spectacular, whereas our thoughts and ways are mundanely small. But the superiority of God's thoughts and ways, because He is the infinite God and because we are finite human beings, as true as that is as a, as a general principle, that's not the issue in verses 6 to 11. 
What is the issue? The issue is that our thoughts are unrighteous and our ways are wicked, verse 7. The problem is not that our thoughts are small and finite. That is not the problem. The problem, rather, is that our thoughts and ways are sinful and unholy. As a matter of fact, as image bearers of God, who are supposed to be in relationship with God, God's thoughts ought to be our thoughts. And God's ways ought to be our ways, and they will be if we listen diligently to Him and internalize His Word and translate His Word into a way of life. But because of our wickedness and unrighteousness, our ways and thoughts have become ungodly. Even so, the Lord offers to restore the relationship and bring us into the realm of His thoughts and His ways. Therefore, to take the Lord up on His offer, you must turn away from your wicked ways and your unrighteous thoughts. At the same time, you must turn to the Lord in view of His promise to have compassion on you and abundantly pardon you. Even in this very passage, the Lord of heaven is speaking forth His words, His ways, and His thoughts to you who are upon the earth right now. Yes, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the Lord's uh, ways higher than your ways and His thoughts higher than your thoughts. But the Lord sends His word, He sends forth His word to bridge this gap between heaven and earth, between the Holy One of heaven and the sinful ones of earth. Look at verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of the Lord, written the word of the Lord proclaimed, the word of the Lord living, our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord spans the great gap between heaven and earth, and it will accomplish its purpose. Listen and obey this word, and you will delight in rich food, verse 2. Listen and obey this word, and you will live, verse 3. Listen and obey this word, and you will be a loved part of God's impactful community, Forever, verses 3 to 5. More than that, you will be in covenant relationship with the Lord God Almighty forever. Listen and obey this word, and the Father will have compassion on you. Verse 7. The Father's compassion is incomparably better than the unsatisfying labor and empty bread of verse 2. Or just ask the prodigal son. Listen and obey this word and your sins will be wiped out, verse 7. Listen and obey this word, and you'll be part of something that grows healthy and strong and fruitful. Listen and obey this word, and the thirst and hunger and bankruptcy of verses 1 and 2 will be your past, and verses 12 and 13 will be your future, which say, for you shall go out in joy. And be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Contrary to the words of the climate change pundits, Isaiah 55 verses 12 and 13 is where the universe is headed. 
The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, Romans 8, 19, when God's redeemed sons and daughters are unveiled with Christ on that glorious day. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, Romans 8, 21. You do not want to miss this. Therefore, I say to you what the Apostle Peter declared to the people in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, save yourselves from this crooked, I also have some applications for believers. Three applications, in fact. First, when you are ministering to unbelievers and seeking to win them to repentance, follow Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, which I'm going to read three verses in just a moment. In our zeal to see people repent, we might be tempted to get frustrated and impatient. Do you know what I mean? Or we might be tempted to pressure and overwhelm an unbeliever. Or we might be tempted to get drawn into a heated argument, at which point we aim to win the argument and forget that we're there to win the person. At such such times, you must remember that God is the one who must bring forth repentance from the sinner's heart. The knowledge that God is the one who must work on the sinner's heart takes the pressure off of you to play restorer of hearts. You are not the restorer of hearts. You are not the Holy Spirit. You cannot turn the lights on in their soul. You cannot release them from the devil's grip. Instead, you are the Lord's servant who has a responsibility to share a message and to share it graciously. Thus, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's chapter 2, yeah, verses 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God may perhaps grant them repentance, or he might not. That's for him to decide. Your job is to stay in your lane and winsomely present the truth to those who need to hear it. Second application for believers. Even though my sermon has focused on a sinner's initial turning to the Lord, it should be noted that there are times when believers fall into serious error and need to be summoned again to repentance. A great, example of this, a great example of this is the Lord's word to the church in Ephesus in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. This church was a discerning church, a doctrinally and morally sound church, a church that was, that was willing to suffer patiently for the Lord's sake, and yet in the midst of their right and admirable action, they had somehow drifted at the heart level. And Jesus said to them in, in uh, Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned 
the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Dotting the I's, crossing the T's, checking the boxes, doing the right things, drawing the lines in all the right places, running the classes, well-curated worship services, impressive output, and yet you are three steps away from a God-orchestrated implosion because your heart is way off. Because the heart has grown dull and the love has grown small and the capacity for godly impact is shrinking by the day. Do you cherish him with all your heart? Do you treasure his words? Do you love his people? Does your heart break for the lost? Has your Christian life grown mechanical, routine, dutiful, self-reliant, casual, comfortable, indulgent, disconnected from the heart and mission of God? Can you imagine what it would be like for a congregation to jealously guard its first love? We usually associate jealousy uh, uh, with something that's bad, but actually uh, jealousy is good when it comes to guarding and protecting that which is of greatest value. The third and final application that I want to make for us believers is uh, just, I just want you, to, I want you to see the church through the lens of repentance. What is, a repent, what is a repentant congregation? A repentant congregation is a congregation whose people's, whose, whose people's hearts are turned to the Lord. If we've turned to him, now, now we're, we're turned to him. We're, we're humbly looking up to the Lord, and his favor and grace is upon us, and we are a humble people, sick, cancer, patience. Don't boast that they turned to the doctor. They're, they're desperate. They're weak. They're dying, and they're grateful for the doctor's care, and that's the way it should be with us. <laughs> we have nothing to be proud about. We're not applauding ourselves because we've repented. Yeah, we're the kind of people who had to repent. We're the kind of people who still have to repent because, because there's, a, there's an everyday repentance that should characterize our life as believers. We, we recognize that we are weak. It's remarkable that in, uh, in, in, Psalm, in Psalm 119, uh, whoever wrote Psalm 119, it might have been David, it might have been someone else, I don't know, whoever wrote Psalm 119, his heart was turned to the Lord. And I want you to realize that someone whose heart was turned to the Lord and who had a heart for God prayed this. Psalm 119, verses 36 and 37. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. 
There's a recognition among the repentant how weak and fragile and prone to wander we actually are. And we continually need the Lord's grace to turn our hearts back to Him and to enable us to put off the deeds that pertain to the sinful nature and to put on the character of Christ. And that's a daily, hourly process that we're called in together. We would encourage and strengthen one another to walk this path. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would demolish every part of our lives that needs to be demolished. I pray that you would turn our hearts to you, that our, that our hearts and our faces would be brightly shining because your grace is being poured out upon us and you're transforming our lives. Father, I pray that you would so transform our lives that we would actually be able to winsomely present the gospel to this perishing world. And we pray that you would call more and more people into your forever family. I pray that you would increase our joy by seeing more people come to the waters to find life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.